My name is Father Edward Looney, and you're listening to the podcast, How They Love Mary, a podcast that I hope will either be the beginning or the deepening of your Marian devotion. One of the topics in the spiritual life that maybe we don't address enough, I think individuals sometimes probably address it themselves, for example, in the Sacrament of Reconciliation, and that is the topic of addiction. And so someone confessing maybe how they fall into an addiction and so perceiving the sin around that and such. And so I think we're going to get into that conversation today, uh, especially as we talk about addiction uh, with Keaton Douglas. Uh, she is the author of The Road to Hope, Responding to the Crisis of Addiction. Uh, Keaton is the executive director of the I Thirst Initiative and is an and is a consultant, educator, counselor, and a frequent guest speaker in the field of addiction and recovery, particularly regarding the role of Catholic spirituality and how that can aid in recovery. So uh, very grateful that Keaton uh, reached out to me. Actually, uh, somehow Lindsay Schlegel is involved in the process of the book. And so um, Lindsay was the one that reached out and longtime listeners of How They Love Mary will know that Lindsay was a guest. Uh, it was a Mother's Day episode a few years back. I'm actually going to re-release it on YouTube only here uh, as we come up to Mother's Day. But but her episode was, I, I called it, uh, Don't Forget to Call Mom and Say Thank You, is based off of her book uh, that she uh, wrote about Catholic motherhood. So she had a hand. She reached out. She said, would you be willing to help Keaton uh, to spread the word about her book and, and to talk about the topic of addiction? So thanks, Keaton, for uh, saying yes and joining me today. Amen. So glad to be with you, Father Edward. And one of the things you mentioned, too, as we were uh, getting ready is that that you've heard me before on relevant radio and other yes. platforms. So, uh, yeah, so that's always great where kind of my other work or whatever uh, kind of mm -hmm. crossover between, uh, you know, this podcast and uh, ministry for, for me. So, um, you know, one of the things maybe just as we get out of the gate here, talking about your book, The Road to Hope, uh, right on the back cover. So this is what happens. Someone goes to a bookstore. They take the book off they probably will read the back cover. And you say on the back cover that during the COVID-19 pandemic and since then, the crisis of addiction has accelerated dramatically. Why do you think that was? How did COVID-19 uh, increase addiction and such uh, in, in society? Sure. Well, you know, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. We have come to understand that the opposite of addiction is, is connection and community and that we are creatures made for connection and for community. So now we are forced into a mandatory isolation and that feeds the addiction. It's one of the great hallmarks of the disease of addiction. No matter what a person is addicted to, Father, it could be, you know, uh, overeating or pornography or social media or something of that nature, in addition to drugs or alcohol. But that isolation, that mandatory isolation saw so many people unable, even those that were in early recovery or in recovery in general, who normally would, would be participating in fellowship meetings. And all of a sudden they're, they're kind of thrust by themselves. And many of them were not able to make it through without either relapsing. And many other people used it as a way to assuage their fear fear of the pandemic, the fear of what, you know, what was going to go on with it. And so they took up 
something to calm their nerves, to assuage that pain. And that was the drugs and alcohol. So we've seen a, a, a terrific explosion in the number of overdose deaths in those years. Monies that were allocated for mental health and substance use programs on the federal and even local level were now uh, now put toward COVID. And we understand why, but it really, it really damaged so many people, so many people. Yeah. Now I know that there is this crisis of addiction and kind of uh, increase with, I, I think, you know, cocaine and, mm -hmm. and meth. So kind of a something that people might be surprised by is that so I have a relative who mm -hmm. actually uh, has been in jail and such for meth uh, and being a meth dealer and stuff. Yeah. And so so I've seen myself the impact that drugs and heavy drugs such as that uh, can have on an individual, the pain that it might cause uh, the family, uh, those who are kind of helping that person because I was there trying to help the person. I When they got out of jail the first time, I wanted them to have success. And so, yeah. um, you know, I, I tried my best to set them up for that. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, can you just speak to maybe, I think often when we talk about addiction, you, you, you just said this, uh, you know, you mentioned alcohol and drugs and uh, but, you know, other addictions to social media, pornography, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, can you just speak about the addictive nature of, of certain drugs, for example? And like, why would someone like what what compels a person to say, I want to be involved in a life of meth, it's for example? It's a great question, Father. And I think this is where we have to understand. I'm going to take a step back and say that any sort of addiction to anything is really an unnatural attachment. We're all prone to attachments, right? We're all prone to things that that keep us from an intimacy with our God and with our fellows and even with, with ourselves and self-care. So when we develop these unnatural attachments, which I use synonymously with the word addiction, it's as if you're putting a hand up in front of your face and the only thing that you can you can focus on is yourself and the object of that. And the reason why that happens, especially with drugs and alcohol, especially with that urgency, is because there's a physiological effect that's going on. So why would a person develop an unnatural attachment? What is the pain at the root of that that would cause them to disenfranchise themselves from their, their lives? You know, and we're all prone to it. You know, sacred scripture, if we look through it with an open eye, we see St. Paul's letter to the Romans in chapter seven, where he says, I'm going to paraphrase, why do I do the things that I don't want to do? Why do I do these things? He was tortured by a compulsion to do something that he didn't want to do. He understood what that meant. So many of our brothers and sisters who exist in what we would call the tangled portion of the vineyard, they don't want to do this. But now there's a physiological reason. The, 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 uh, the brain is reacting to the dopamine that's coming in. The cravings are being sent to this person. So many people want to lift themselves up. So many people are fearful because it means... You know, many times we get there because we're trying to assuage a pain, trauma, abuse, feelings of not fitting in. So we experiment a little bit. Then the habit becomes a compulsion. The compulsion becomes the struggle itself. Because, Father, nobody wants to wake up dope sick. Nobody wants to live in jail. Nobody, but it is not something that is able to be turned on and off like a light switch. And that's why there's a real spiritual component to this. There's a physiological component. There's a psychological component. And there's a spiritual healing that only our faith, our church can truly provide. 
We can't look to clinicians for that. We have to look inward. What can the Lord Jesus do? Everything. One of the things I often counsel people in the sacrament of reconciliation when uh -huh. they might confess a certain sin, and it might not even deal with addiction, for example, but you know, uh, I'll often share the sense that sometimes sin has built-in consequence. Of course, there's yeah. eternal consequences, uh, sure, especially serious sin can impact our relationship with God, our eternal destiny, et cetera. But sometimes that sin, you know, so, you know, if, if let's say a young person comes in, they're engaging in premarital sex or something like right. that. Well, I tell them, you do realize that this has a consequence and you might become pregnant. It will change the rest of your life. You might become an unexpected mother or an unexpected mm -hmm. father. And what's that going to mean? And, and so if we live the life that God wants, he wants us to abstain, for example, in that situation, well, then well, then that consequence is taken away. Well, the same thing with other addictions. So uh, a person struggles with alcohol. They're at the saloon or at, they're at the pub. Mm -hmm. They're drinking a lot. And then they get in their car and they drive home and they hit someone. So there's yeah. a consequence. I made this decision. And now this is the consequence as a result. So can, can that sometimes convict someone that they have to change their lives? You know, it can, it can, but if you read through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which of course is, is, is a beautifully inspired book written by the founders, Dr. Bob Smith and Bill Wilson, um, and it is they who gave us the 12-step program, and for, for you and for your listeners, if you're not familiar with it, the 12-step program that we hear so often about is born out of sacred scripture. It's born out of Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. It's born out of 1 Corinthians 13. It's born out of the epistle of St. James. So the roots of it are in our faith, which is beautiful. But you, when you read through the book, they give you an example of somebody that enjoys jaywalking, right? And they think it's kind of cool and it's kind of fun. And then they kind of get hit by a car a little bit, you know, and they go back out and they jaywalk again and then they come back in and they get hit and they get run over. And the final consequences is that they've lost everything in their attraction and their feet are up in the air and they've lost their wives and they've lost everything that, and they, they get out of the hospital and they're hobbling and they go, wow, I can't wait to get back into traffic. And you look at that and you say, that is insanity, but that is what is happening to a person's brain so often when they are addicted. And if we go back into sacred scripture, we could look to Proverbs 23. It's about the same thing. It's about who, who shrieks when we see alcohol. It comes like a claret. It's so beautiful. And then by the end of it, I'm, I'm drinking. I feel like I'm on a masthead. When can I have that alcohol again? You know, it's a, it's a very real depiction of our spiritual ancestors feeling the same way that we feel today. Sometimes I pray that these consequences will affect a person, but so often it's the psychology and the physiology, as well as the spiritual emptiness that causes them just to continue the behavior, which you and I look at and we go, oh my goodness, it's so destructive. Who would do that? And yet they do. And yet they do. So uh, maybe just to put out a few different scenarios, kind of what I've seen, et cetera. Uh, for example, um, I know a person, they got into a, a, a motor vehicle accident. Fortunately, it was just a one car accident. It was, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they hit a tree or whatever, but they were impaired from alcohol. I saw the person then a few months later and, and uh, they said, oh, you know, I'm never going to drink again. I almost died. And then mm -hmm. two weeks later, I see them again and there they are with 
you know, yeah. a, a, a smaller beer. They're not drinking cocktails or mixed drinks, but they're still having. Uh, so, so they went back to that lifestyle. And mm -hmm. so, so I just, when I observed that, I thought to myself, well, you said that you were never going to do this again, because, because again, talk about the consequence, they realized it. And so I was real hopeful for them, but I, but for them, I think it was an environmental thing. So sure. they, they enjoy certain things that might take place, uh, where, where alcohol is consumed. And so, because they're mm -hmm. in that environment, then they were just kind of, okay, oh, I'll just have one. Okay, maybe I'll, I can have three. Mm -hmm. I have a driver today. That's okay. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, so I don't know your thoughts about, about. Yeah, it, it's hard to understand for those of us that don't have that inclination toward it. it. This is when it becomes a neuroscience. This is, it is indeed a disease of the brain. It is indeed where the receptors are craving now the dopamine that comes, the saturation that comes from the use of that. I see it all the time, Father. I see people in detox and they mean it. I will never ever do this again the consequences are too much to bear they mean it sincerely they walk out the door they walk past the liquor store and they go right in they are being that is part of the craving that happens and it's also why it's so important that they not be alone again away from the isolation into community into a community of people that say this is why the fellowships of alcohol it's anonymous narcotics anonymous are so important and it's why it's important that we walk with them and say brothers and sisters I'm going to walk with you through this journey. I'm going to help you. Uh, I'm going to help you develop a spiritual intimacy with the God of your understanding um, and, and, and walk with you through this entire process. And it's really that spiritual healing, again, coming from the 12-step program. It is a spiritual program. That's, that's a part that's so often neglected, Father. And uh, it's a big part of what, what we need to do because this disease affects all of us in terms of our own attachments, you know? We really want to start thinking, like dispelling the myth of the other, because we are all prone to it. Spiritually, we're prone to it. We're prone to it physiologically. We're prone to it psychologically. And it's uh, it's time that we kind of have to start looking at these folks, kind of like the Good Samaritan did. You know, it's bloody. They're in the street. It's not really holy. We're a little tentative. But Christ tells us, go show them mercy. And that's what we really need to start doing as a beautiful church community. We have, we have it. Um, there are mother's children as we are, you know, so. Now, how do we know if a person has an addiction? So it could be someone listening and they're like, you know, I think I really, you know, and, and it could be as unhealthy as an addiction to, I love my Diet Coke. I love my coffee. And right. so, so maybe they have an addiction right. there. But even like, so again, let's, I think alcohol is just always the easy default answer. And so let's say someone accuses a person of having an alcohol addiction and then, and then that person, they, they don't drink for, for hundreds of days and they never had withdrawal symptoms. So, so were they addicted to alcohol? Maybe not, maybe not like bodily dependent, but would there still have been an addiction there, even though they have entered into a, a long time of sobriety? You know, it, it's interesting. First of all, the um, for a person that is uh, addicted, I use the terminology that was given to us by Dr. Gerald G. May, who was a great author, prolific author, uh, a psychiatrist, wrote a very watershed book called Addiction and Grace. And uh, it was he who really started developing uh, the understanding of spirituality and its interface with addiction and, and recovery. He wrote many, many books about it. And um, he refers to addiction as having tolerance where you need more and more and more and more of it in order to get the same feeling. 
a withdrawal where your body goes into kind of like an agitation, even if it's not a, a non-chemical addiction, even if it's like to, to gambling, you start getting agitated if you can't do it. And he talks about that. Also the, the distortion of beliefs where you start kind of like that self-deception, you know, I only drink beer, so I can't really be an alcoholic. And then also something that he talks about is the inability to talk about it with others. You know, and, and it's funny because when I work and I still work in treatment facilities and I work with those who are incarcerated, I'll say, yeah, do you remember when you would go from one place to another, like one liquor store to the other liquor store, because you didn't want anybody to really know how much you were absolutely drinking. And they all go, oh, yeah, I did it. I did it. Mm. They understand it. You know, so I think that um, that we can look at that. And the other thing, to which is important to, to remember, is that. The addiction memory of the brain, all of the cycles of the brain, all of those neurons have been affected, all of them. So a person can never be too cocky enough that they, they become complacent. They have to work a program, right? They have, to, they have to stay in the moment. They have to keep connected because if not, the addiction memory never can be totally eradicated. And I heard a story. Um, from a group of gentlemen that I was teaching recovery Bible to. And they said um, that there was a fellow that they knew with 38 years of sobriety who went out to dinner with his wife for their anniversary and thought, I can have one glass of champagne hmm. and went right back out because all of those sense memories and all the addiction memory that is housed in the brain caused him to come right, fell right back out of it. So vigilance, it's neuroscience, it's psychology, and it's definitely spirituality. It's finding that intimacy with our God that really leads us along the, the road to hope, which is a metaphor for recovery and our way back to Christ. So one of the words you've mentioned or programs is Alcoholics Anonymous. You've mentioned a few other uh, authors who've written about the spirituality of uh, addiction and such. And so what is the role of, of God, the role of the divine power, I think is what AA, uh, how they address it. But right. maybe so, so help us understand the spiritual connection, sure. but maybe does your approach differ than that of AA, for example, or, sure. or what, what do you offer? So what, what we do, you know, um, the the spirituality of addiction we are your mind body and spirit right we we know that as as human beings as persons of unique human dignity we are mind body and spirit so repairing it's almost like a three-legged stool i like to call it so repairing your your mind kind of figuring out why you got there in the first place and then kind of taking care of your physiological issues those are great but if you don't take care of your spiritual life and what gives your life meaning and purpose in your relationship with god if you don't take care of that. It's like a three-legged stool. If you go to sit on it, you're not going to be successful sitting down. You're going to land on your bottom. So, you know, we want to look at what that spiritual life is. That spiritual life for us is everything. And yes, we are, we certainly, um, we, we have the support of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and so much of what we teach with regarding to the 12 step is, is similar. In fact, I thirst is an acronym the words of my program, the acronym is the healing initiative, recovery, spirituality, 12 step, precisely because it's born out of sacred scripture. And we go through sacred scripture and find out, you know, what does that mean? What is these various steps that we go through? What are we talking about? We're talking about a self-emptying. We're talking about, it's very much in line with the Ignatian spiritual exercises. And even St. Teresa of Avila's interior castle, kind of like mm. sweeping out our own stuff to find the indwelling of our God. That's what the spirituality does. We get rid of our own stuff 
and we find the indwelling of God. We find that we walk back into that light. It's a personal journey of transformation, Father. And as we journey to find our authentic selves, we can develop a deep intimacy with God. And that is life-sustaining for everyone. So, you know, it's not enough just to abstain, to feel joyful and serene. We must have that intimate connection with God. So you wrote the book, The Road to Hope, Responding to the Crisis of Addiction. What was your aim or hope as you wrote this book? Or who are you writing the book for? Or who should sure. read the book? Well, somebody uh, somebody asked me that the other day. Who should have this book in hand? And I said, well, clearly, anybody whose life has been affected by the disease of addiction, no matter what it looks like, whether it's anything, that unnatural attachment to something, somebody like that absolutely needs it. And then I said, you know, who else needs it? Somebody whose life has never been affected by addiction because they need to be part of the solution of all of us working together to accompany our brothers and sisters. This is the apostolate of the ear where we learn not to look at people with judgment, but to recognize the face of Christ in them and recognize our own attachments in ourselves. So it's uh, the, the overriding thing is to really, as I mentioned before, to dispel the myth of the other. You know, Father, I had an experience years ago where I, I had a reversion to the faith. I, I, I never left the faith, but I had uh, the unexpected demise of my first marriage when I was a, a much younger gal. I was left with a two-year-old and I was devastated and I was angry. And it took me about eight years to get rid of the poison of that unforgiveness. But our, our lady stepped in, which is a whole other story. Mm -hmm. Our lady stepped in and helped me heal my life and brought me to the foot of the cross with her. And, and that's when I started developing this beautiful relationship, not only with my, my mother and with, with Jesus, but with our whole faith, which I really embraced and needed to know more about, went back to school, et cetera, for all of that. And I started being asked to speak about my, my witness, you know, give my witness. I was healed by the faith. And uh, somebody said to me, go, go on this retreat. There's 25 women there that are suffering from heroin addiction. And I said, I don't want to go. I said, I'm terrified because I never smoked marijuana once in my life. What do they want to hear from me for? You know, and the man who became my mentor in this particular group said, do you think that there, there's nothing they can learn from you? And I was like, I guess they can learn something. And then he said to me, do you think there's nothing that you can learn from them? Hmm. And I was like, mind blown. I, Cause I hadn't thought about that. So I went and I told my story. And when I got upset and I cried a little bit, they cried with me. And when I laughed, they laughed with me. And there were hugs and love all the way around. And when I left there, I recognized that they had taught me the most important thing, which was it does not matter what breaks us. We are all broken. It is what we do in our brokenness and how we accompany each other along this journey with Christ's love and Christ's mercy that matters. It didn't matter that my brokenness came from adultery and theirs came from addiction. What mattered was that we were journeying together in love and in hope and in Christ. And that's healing. So that's why I want this book. It should, every pastor should have it, every parochial vicar, every DRE, people running ministry so they could see how to integrate this. Father, this affects all of us. And it's not just drugs and alcohol. It's anything, any attachment that keeps us from our closeness to Christ. Well, you mentioned that you had a mentor and I know like in AA, people have sponsors. Right. And so one, one of the points you bring out in the book is spiritual companionship. Right. So what does that look like? What does that mean? 
So one of the things, um, as I wound up taking that ministry over, I wound up becoming a regular person that, you know, it's at the Shrine of St. Joseph in uh, in um, Sterling, New Jersey, run by the Missionary Servants of the Most Holy Trinity. It's a community of priests and brothers with whom I work, and they have been at the forefront of working with those that are suffering from addictions for 101 years since their founding. And um, I wound up being, you know, volunteering. And then when my mentors went on, I went on to take over the uh, the ministry. And one of the things that that I said to my mentors was, I said, you know, this is affecting disease of addiction, just substance use disorder, just drugs and alcohol affects nearly 40 million people, plus their family members. So it's like 100 million people that are affected by this disease that wake up every morning and say, how is my life going to be affected by my child or my husband or myself, et cetera. So I said, it's in every parish and it's in every school and it's in every community and it's in nearly every family. This is the truth, statistically speaking, it's absolutely true. And I said, so what is our church doing systemically? Systemically, I don't mean, you know, Our Lady of Lords has this recovery. What is our response systemically as, as, as a church to say, we understand the brokenness of this brothers and sisters, this particular kind. So I developed, I had was a, a, a recovery coach, which is in the secular world. And in recovery coach training, it's 30 hours of training. They talk all about everything except for spirituality. There were only two pages about it. Mm. And yet so many people are healed. That's the premise of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's the premise of Narcotics Anonymous, the development of that spiritual life. So I developed a curriculum called I Thirst Spiritual Companionship Training. It's 218 pages of, uh, of training. It's 48 hours. It is certified through Seton Hall University. My alma mater for my graduate study in theology uh, certified it. And what we do now, Father, is we also have a partnership with Catholic Extension. So we we train people. And now we've got people trained uh, that go back into their parishes, their Catholic schools, their chaplaincies, and they have the opportunity to walk one-on-one -on -one with people. They're also working in reentry programs, correctional facilities from Ireland, from Dublin, Ireland, to Pago Pago in American Samoa. Wherever there are Catholics, I'm hopeful that you can knock on the door of any Catholic institution, no matter who you are. Maybe you have no faith. Maybe this is the tool of evangelization. And you go, I need some help. And there's going to be somebody there that says, brother, sister, I get you. I understand the disease of addiction, and I'm going to give you some spiritual consolation as well. So it's kind of like that. We've, we've created all these Ither spiritual companions. It's training that is always ongoing through Seton Hall. I've got another class coming through Catholic Extension. So um, got a new group coming in from Anchorage, Alaska, and the Catholic faith. They're all Catholic, and um, we're we're out there. We're out there trying to um, trying to change it up a little bit. When we talk about addiction, and so you know, there there's sin in our lives, right? So drunkenness is a sin, or mm -hmm. pornography is a mm -hmm. sin, overeating is a sin, but. Uh, I, I'm wondering, and my perception is, is that if it's addictive, it lessens the culpability of it. It's still mm -hmm. a sin. You should confess mm -hmm. it, but right. but your responsibility for it is a bit less because right. you have fallen. So so how do we cope with, how do we reconcile the addictive nature with uh, the reality of sin? Well, I think that's a great question. And um you know, I think even if you look in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and uh, off the top of my head, I'm going to say it's in chapter, uh, paragraph 1847 or 1849, they're talking about sin. They talk about it as a perverse attachment. So we're talking about it in the same language. So anytime there's something that gets in our way of the true intimacy with our Lord, 
we're, we're sinful. It's sinful behavior. So is there an element of sin to addiction? Of course. Anytime I, I go like this, you know, and I can't look up and worship, you know, my unnatural attachment keeps me from it from living my, those two great commandments that Christ gives me in, in, in Matthew 22, to love my God above all other things and to love my neighbors as I love myself. You know, that's the very cross itself. And I can't do that. I can't love God. I can't love my fellows. I can't even take care of myself. When the focus of my attention, I'm perseverating on that unnatural attachment that's in front of me. So is there an element of sinfulness? I, of course, anytime we do anything, but you're right. What happens is that there is a little bit of a lessening of, of, of culpability for somebody that no longer, they are now powerless over it. They're powerless over it. So we ask ourselves, is this a moral failing or, or is it? Yes, to a certain extent, we all have moral failings, but isn't that our, now I, I had this experience, Father, years ago when I was first getting started in this work, I met a very wonderful priest it was not somebody that I knew. And I, I was very excited about this work. So I went to him and I said, Father, do you have a recovery ministry or something in, in church for those that are suffering? And he said to me, oh, no, that's a moral. It's a moral failing. And, uh, and I looked at him and, and with respect, I said, isn't that our gig anyway? Like if our brothers and sisters are having a moral issue, are we not supposed to be the ones to reach out to them, to try mm. to bring them back to the fold? If we call it a bad choice, and some people make bad choices, if they make a bad choice, should we not be investigating what is the pain at the root of that choice that causes someone to disenfranchise themselves from all of their life, including sometimes their own children and family? Like, what is going on? I said, there's nothing we can call this. It's a brain di disease. It's a moral failing. It's a bad choice. It's, a, it's all those things. But there's nothing we can call it where we as Catholics don't have a responsibility to reach out to those in pain and suffering, to look and see the face of Christ in theirs, and to walk them, to walk them home. Someone might say, you know, I have a problem. And and so that's the classic, you know, you see it in yeah. television shows, you know, right. I'm so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic or whatever right. it is. And so, but let's say someone says, I have a problem. I want to get help. Maybe they go to an AA meeting, but now how can their Catholic faith be a resource to them? Maybe as you've mentioned, a church will have a recovery ministry. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, as a pastor, I'll tell you, we don't. So, mm -hmm. so I know many parishes out there probably don't, but, but we have all of these little treasures in our faith that I think yeah. can help us. Like somehow I think the rosary can be a way that we 100%. can be set free. The role of the saints, I, you know, Lots 100%. of saints have stories of addiction. So, so what is the role of saints or Catholic spirituality devotion uh, in overcoming Absolutely. addiction? It's and it's it's plentiful and it's glorious. It's beautiful. Um, you know, we could do something as faith communities tomorrow, today. One of the things is to start the conversation. And how do we do that? Maybe in our prayers of the faithful, we pray for those suffering from the disease of addiction and their families, that the Lord may give them his healing love and mercy, that they may return fully in full communion with our faith. We pray to the Lord, Lord, hear our prayer. Things of that nature. Could you imagine being a mom in the back who's suffering because your child is 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 not only left the church, but has is living on a park bench somewhere, and they all of a sudden they hear it coming from the altar the mm. prayer of the faithful, have a mass intention all throughout Recovery Awareness Month, which is September and Overdose Awareness Month in August. I buy masses 
in my little church up here in the woods and we pray. The mass is dedicated to those who are suffering or to those who have sought recovery and are getting it. We look for a healing mass and or a recovery mass that people may gather particularly important for family members that don't feel that they can do anything. They are powerless over this disease of their loved ones as well. They can't fix them. It's very, it's very frustrating, but we can come together in community and pray the rosary. We can speak to our ministers of bereavement groups and say, you know, it's a little bit different because of the societal stigma for a family member who's lost somebody to an overdose than somebody that's been, that lost somebody to, to COVID because there's that little stigma that says, ah, you know, they probably did that to themselves. And in effect, they probably did, but they were powerless over what they were doing. So the rosary is hugely important. In fact, I took the liberty of actually putting together like what I would perceive as mysteries of the rosary hmm. for those specifically who are addicted, you know, or the modern day lepers having a homily. There's so much throughout sacred scripture that is the same message over and over. You know, I, I think about, um, you know, the, the whole concept of God wants us to return to him with a contrite heart. And when we do, he is there mercifully bringing us home. We can look at that from Deuteronomy 4 and the fidelity chapters to the prodigal son and everything in between. God comes running out to us, make that turn. That is who is the modern day prodigal? Those that are suffering from addictions. What is their road to hope? Turning back, making that pivot back to the father. So there's so much that we can do on a, you know, on a basis without even having that recovery. We could put pamphlets out for uh, AA and NA meetings, make them available. Have somebody with pamphlets that's uh, at the food pantry. Because most of the people that are coming in for food pantry are people that so often have addictions to things that is, you know, precluding them from having enough money to live. So many, many, many things that we could do, events that we can hold, speaking about it, making people feel welcomed again. You know, I, I had the privilege of working with Mother Olga Jakob up in the Archdiocese of Boston. She's just a beautiful and brilliant hmm. woman. And, and she runs the Daughters of Mary of Nazareth. So um, we, we, I had the privilege of staying with, with mother and the sisters for a weekend and teaching them the course that I, that I wrote. Her sisters work in, with women in transition, incarcerated, et cetera. And, uh, but they didn't understand the disease of addiction. They couldn't understand why a woman couldn't just turn it off. So we, we went through this. We understood. One of the things she said to me was, Keaton, it's so important because people are not giving their children the right of Christian burial because they're too embarrassed to come back to the church. They feel hmm. unwelcome and unworthy. And I said, mother, that's something that through our work and the work of many others that are doing so many good things, we'd like to change that. We'd like everybody to be welcomed home to the faith with an understanding, you know? So, so that's the work that we're doing, father. You mentioned these rosary mysteries. How how can somebody find them? Are they on your website or? Well, they're soon to be on the website. Um, they are. We are doing a posting now, but um, certainly I can make them available to you, Father, and then they will be posted on our website as well in the very near future. We're kind of undergoing a little bit of a transition as we're putting all of the book information on there and watching. Sure, sure. So, yes. That's yeah. great. Uh, who are some saints that you know maybe? Uh, a mom, dad, grandma, grandpa are listening right now, a brother or sister of someone that's with addiction. Sure. Uh, do you have any saintly friends that they can oh, begin to invoke? Many. Um, uh, there's 
of course, St. Maximilian Kolbe, who uh, lost his life, a great Marian devotee, right? Uh, and who lost his life uh, at the consecration camps. And he is the patron saint of those suffering from IV drug use, uh, because of course he was put to death by lethal injection. So oh. um, he was, he's a, a big one for those that are suffering. So is blessed Matt Talbot is the patron saint of alcoholics. Um, saint Mark G, J.I., um, he was uh, killed in the Boxer Rebellion in China in 1900. Um, he was a physician who himself was addicted to opium. Throughout his whole saintly life, he couldn't stop. That holy man could not stop. So we look to him. We look to St. Monica and to St. Augustine, who himself had unnatural attachments, so many unnatural attachments that, right? And, and her perseverance as a mother of one with unnatural attachments. So the two of them are do a great service uh, to both of us you know, to all of us. And of course, Our Lady, we always are praying because it is is Our Lady's tender mercies that um, I believe inspired any of the work that I thirst and certainly inspired the book and everything that I do on a daily basis comes from comes from our mother. So um, she is always present for us. So those are some that I would recommend. That's great. And if people want to learn more about I Thirst, they want to learn more about your ministry, the book, uh, what are some websites or how can they get a hold of the book? Sure. They can go to our website uh, for further information, which is www.ithirstinitiative.org. Ithirstinitiative.org. That's all one word. They can also order the book from our Sunday visitor, osbcatholicbookstore.com. It's available on OSV's website. It's also available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever good books are sold. So online is, is uh, a great way to do that. And they, I would invite them also to look at trinitymissions.org. That's the community of priests and brothers for whom I thirst is now a mission that I mentioned before, founded by Father Thomas Judge. 101 years ago, he was a Vincentian priest who um, understood that the faith needed to be preserved amongst all of those uh, that were poor and abandoned, but recognized that amongst that group, there were those that were suffering from addictions. He also had one of the most prophetic um, sayings, mantras, which is every Catholic and apostle. Every Catholic oh. and apostle. I oh, love that. Great. Isn't that? Yeah, definitely. Well, I know that the book has been wildly popular already. I think that the first printing sold out, and so it had to go immediately into a second printing. Yeah. So. Um, I think that speaks to the demand that people have for materials about addiction. And so uh, the road to hope responding to the crisis of addiction is one way that uh, you're you're helping and uh, one of the resources out there helping those cope uh, with family members or even those who are addicted themselves. So maybe one final question. And uh, this is something uh, listeners will know from the very beginning. I used to do like a Marian profile and then kind of uh, interviews got longer. I started interviewing a few non-Catholics. So I thought that, you know, so then I kind of just dropped it. But uh, I listened to a podcast uh, from uh, from a popular Christian, you know, not a Catholic, but Annie Downs, Annie F. Downs. She has a podcast, What Sounds Fun. And so at the end of every interview, she says, what sounds fun to you today? And so, so I'm thinking, you know, because this is how they love Mary, now, going forward, every episode, the final question is going to be, well, how do you love Mary? And so uh, I pose it to you. Thank you, Father. Um, you could tell our, I, I can't do anything without Mary over my shoulder and in my hand. 
Um, she led me back to the foot of the cross after that, the demise of my first marriage, suffering that I put myself through my anger at God. Um, she gave me a beautiful moment where I was able to forgive all people involved. And then she invited herself back into my heart and she stole it. She took my heart. Um, I was drawn back to the rosary in a very profound way. And I just share with you this quick little story. When I, I did marry again in the church, praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, mother. Um, but when I met the gentleman that would become my second husband, I was much older. I'd been a single mother for a long time, no choice of my own. And um, I met this gentleman and we, we really, we had a courtship, like very much like they did back in the day. It was truly a courtship. And um, one day he looked at me and he said, I want you to meet my mother and my father. And I was terrified, meet my parents. I felt like I was 17 years old again. Hmm. So I wanted to, and it was Christmas Eve. I wanted to prepare something that was nice. So I went out and I made all these, uh, these cookies for Christmas and um, except I'm a terrible baker. So my, I wanted to make biscottis, but my cookies came out like little arthritic fingers. They were terrible looking. So I, I kind of hid them and I put them in a pretty box and I went to the house and I laugh about it because when I walked into the house, they were lovely people. But the woman that became my mother-in-law was a great baker and she had all these beautiful cookies all extravagantly, you know, so I was just praying, oh Lord, please don't let me have her open my cookies. But something happened that night that was life-changing to me and that involves Our Lady. Um, at the time I was getting back into the rosary and praying it, but I had a hard time understanding the mysteries and how they fit in with my Hail Mary. So I, I was just, I was searching for something. And that day, Christmas Eve, after about an hour and a half of being with these folks that would become my in-laws, I sat down and, and, Rosemary, his mom, went to the bookshelf and she got a book. She opened it up and it was a, a photo album. And she's like, you know, this is Tommy at Lake Kapak Kong. And this is Tommy's first communion. And this is when he, and she was going through all these mysteries and all these stories. And I realized, you know, that was for me. That's why I said, you know, this is what Mary does. What his mother had done was assess that there was love between Tom and me. And she was sharing with him parts of, of his life that I had been privy to through her eyes. Oh, wow. And I walked out of there and I was like, Mary, when I'm those mysteries, I'm looking through the photo album of our mother, of our, of our Lord through his mother's eyes. And there's nobody that can tell me better about it or bring me closer to him than she can. So that's how I approach it now. And it's changed my life. It's changed the way I pray the rosary. Um, but it's always... My my mother-in-law Rosemary taught me this about my mother, Mary, um, that she sits with me and takes me through those beautiful moments of Jesus's life because she knows there's love there and she knows I wasn't privy to see it through her eyes, but she shares that with me. So that's my Marian story. And she's been in my heart ever since. Well, that's very beautiful. And I'm grateful you shared that. And, you know, that's one of the ways that I often describe uh, the rosary. When I speak to young people, I tell them the rosary is like Mary's Instagram account. Yeah. So it's just photos of Jesus's life, you know, but yeah. now it's probably now it would probably be something with Snapchat or something. Right, you know? right. But uh, I, I still use the Instagram reference, but that's beautiful. And I'm glad you brought that up. And yeah, well, Keen, thanks so much for joining me today to talk Thank about this mother. very important topic. And uh, yeah, I hope that people will go out and grab a copy of your book and uh, give it to someone they know that might need it or yeah. uh, to familiarize themselves. So thanks mm -hmm. so much. Thank you so much, Father Edward. I appreciate it more than you know.